Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Hello and welcome into the Legal Face Off podcast once again on WGN Radio. I'm your moderator, Joe Brand. We are joined by Rich Lenkov of Downey and Lenkov, one of our co-hosts. And we send our best wishes to Tina Martini under the weather, unable to be on this week's episode. We'll start off with, although there were no major protests in Chicago after the release of the body cam footage of Memphis police brutally beating Tyree Nichols, many activists were still expressing their anger. We welcome back to the show law professor Sharon R. Fairley of the University of Chicago and graduate of the University of Chicago Law School. Professor, thank you so much for joining us today. Sure. Thank you for having me. Sharon, you're also a former uh, U.S. Uh, or for, former prosecutor with the U.S. Attorney's Office. You're also uh, following the shooting death of Laquan McDonald. Were appointed to serve as the chief administrator of the Independent Police Review Authority, the agency that is responsible for police misconduct investigation. You also created the Chicago Civilian Office of Police Accountability. So obviously, you're an expert in the subject matter. Speaking of Tyree Nichols. With the benefit of a couple of weeks now um, since that uh, uh, the release of that that video and the charging of the officers, what ha- what do we know now that we didn't know a few weeks ago? And, and what lessons uh, do you think we could take away from this whole whole incident? Yes. Well, as we know, the investigation into you know the, the, the events that happened is ongoing. And so the law enforcement entities and government agencies that are responsible for holding the those involved accountable are continuing their work. Uh, so we know that you know seven additional officers are under investigation and may face disciplinary charges um, at, uh, in addition to the five officers that were initially discharged from the department and and then also charged criminally in the matter. Uh, we also know that there were three members of the fire department that were also facing disciplinary charges as associated with, with their conduct. And then, of course, there were two sheriff de- deputies that have been, I believe they've been suspended. Uh, so the, the, the investigation and the work continues to make sure that those that were involved in, and acted inappropriately are being held accountable. I think that's important. I think we're starting to see now the, the department taking stock of what happened and trying to figure out how to prevent something similar happening in the future. Obviously, the first important thing that the chief of police did was to disband the Scorpion unit, which was the unit that these the, the five officers who were directly involved belonged to. This had been a unit that this chief of police had, had stood up last year in an effort to combat the, the terrible violent crime problem. That, that Memphis is experiencing, much like many other urban cities in the country. Um, but they had set up this unit to, to, to do some aggressive policing. And unfortunately, this is one of the unintended consequences of, of directing officers to go out and, and be aggressive. So, um, you know, there's a lot of discussion in the law enforcement community around whether those kinds of units are more helpful than not. Uh, and so I think that that debate will continue. Sharon Wall, the authorities were praised in this situation for the swiftness in which they 
acted in both the firing of the officers and the charging of the officers initially. Um, that's a two-edged sword, isn't it? Because as someone who was responsible for prosecuting crimes for um, many years in the U.S. Attorney's Office here in the Northern District, I I'm sure you agree that it's one thing to charge someone with a crime. It's another thing to actually convict them. And frequently, the reason why these investigations take a long time is because you need to really thoroughly uh, investigate and develop a case. And if you charge them someone too quickly, you might not be able to develop enough evidence to later sustain that charge. So talk to us maybe about the dichotomy here between wanting to very publicly in this kind of situation with a video like the one we saw with Tyree Nichols, send a message to the public that justice is being served, but also um, not acting too quickly so you don't overcharge someone that later can't be sustained. In this case, it seems rather obvious they might the right, right decision, but it's not always as clear as the video might seem. Yeah, so that's always going to be a challenge when you're conducting an investigation of this nature is trying to balance the need for transparency uh, and to show the community that justice is, is underway um, while also maintaining the integrity of an investigation that's undertaken. It's my understanding that uh, the folks that were involved in the preliminary investigation that, that led to the, the first criminal charges is that they didn't act right away, right? They, they took the time to, to conduct the certain critical investigative steps that really need to happen early on in the investigation. And primarily I'm referring to interviewing the, the witnesses, the, the most important witnesses that were there, that they did, they were able to get those interviews conducted before they released the video. And, and that's really the biggest hurdle, right, is to make sure that you aren't introducing into the public domain video or other evidence, police reports, for example, that may taint a potential witness's understanding or memory of what happened. And so you try to get those critical investigative steps conducted before releasing information to the public. Sharon, obviously the body cam video will be a key piece of the prosecution's evidence here. There is some evidence that, or some allegations that some of the officers turned off their video, but you know, um, what does this incident say about body cam videos in general? If these officers were brazen enough to, uh, you know, perform this, what I consider a crime, uh, you know, commit this crime on, on Tyree Nichols, all with their body cam video on, what does that say about the effectiveness of body cam videos in general? So I'm not so much sure about it, what it says about body cam video in general, as much as it says that they, it seems that they felt like they were acting with impunity, that they were conducting themselves in this way, understanding that their actions were being recorded, and yet still thinking that, that this was going to be okay. Um, and so to me, it says more about the accountability system in the department. For, for them to feel like that they could conduct themselves in this way and, and not be held accountable for it. Now, when it comes to body-worn camera footage, we know that sometimes it's extremely helpful, sometimes not so much. It really depends. Sometimes you have a body camera footage that kind of comes on after an incident is already underway, and so you don't get the whole story of how things evolved, how it started out, and how we got to this particular moment. So it, it could only tell you a piece of the story. So 
body one camera footage isn't always kind of the panacea, but it, it can be very, very helpful. Now, in this particular case, the most helpful video, in my view, was the pod camera video. Um, and, and so that's the video that actually was the best in terms of actually being able to see the conduct as it was occurring. And so that that's also an important piece of the evidence here. Last question here um, on legal faceoff, Sharon. The DOJ has uh, indicated that they were be, they would be looking into civil rights violations in the Memphis Police Department. We've seen similar investigations across the country in the wake of similar events, including here in Chicago. Uh, unfortunately, you know, by most statistics, the consent decree in Chicago is only being followed a, a very small percentage of it. Do you think the federal, uh, you know, what? I guess my question is what role does the federal government have um, in avoiding similar situations in, in the future? Well, you know, the, the federal government's program of undertaking pattern and practice investigations, it's really kind of been around for the last 10, 15 years. Um, I think the Obama administration really took it to heart and, and, and used it as an important police reform tool. Um, but we also know that it's, you know, it's not a perfect tool, right? You know, we've been under the consent decree here since 2019, so going on four years, and, and the progress is really slow. Um, and so, uh, you know, it can be really, really frustrating. Yet at the same time that we know, sometimes it's almost impossible to get police departments to undertake the kind of reform or the depth of the reform that they need to undertake without having that court-ordered stick, right, behind them, right? To, to motivate them to do it. And so it is an important police reform tool. Again, that's University of Chicago law professor Sharon R. Fairley, former federal prosecutor of the U.S. State's Attorney's Office and creator of Chicago's Civilian Office of Police Accountability. Sharon, thank you very much for the insight today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Welcome back to the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio. Experts are saying Lisa Marie's trust battle may last a few years. With that, we bring in David Eskibius, who serves the Los Angeles and Ventura counties with his own law office. David, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. David, so we know that uh, Priscilla uh, Presley is trying to undo the alleged changes to the Presley estate. Walk us through sort of what the allegations of the complaint are um, before we get into how successful we think they'll be. So she's trying, 
the mom, Priscilla, is trying to say that her daughter uh, didn't follow the procedure that is in the trust that, uh, that the daughter put in in 2010. And so when, when you have a trust, a trust is a contract. And so there's a procedure that must be followed when you want to change the trustee. And if the trust says that this is the procedure that must be followed, then you have to follow that procedure. If the trust says that it, it, it is simply a procedure to be followed, then you can choose to follow that procedure or you can follow a procedure that's outlined by the state of California statutes. They're saying that this was a procedure that must be filed and she didn't file it. Therefore, it's not valid and Priscilla still remains trustee. And what was that procedure? And how does the procedure was how does it differ from the norm? It actually doesn't. It's it's pretty typical. The procedure that is outlined in their trust says that if the trust wants to, if the trustee wants to be replaced, then it has to be done in writing and it has to be delivered to the trustee. So if, if Lisa Marie wanted to fire mom, then she had to put it in writing and give it to her. And what Priscilla is saying is that. She never gave it to her during her lifetime. Priscilla is saying she only found the writing after Lisa Marie died. David, what do we make of the allegations uh, in, specifically that it wasn't signed, wasn't notarized, it was signed on a blank page? Um, to a lay person who doesn't handle these things, that all seems to be fairly telling. Obviously, you know, the the the, the veracity of the signature will rely on, you know, if it gets to that point, we'll rely on some expert analysis. But that all seems a little fishy, no? Yeah, it does, for sure. You know, when you have a signature on a standalone page, um, you know, the signature is not with other paragraphs of the trust. That appears to be contrived. And that's what happened here. And if the signature appears to be not the consistent signature that everyone has seen over the years. That also appears fishy. And these are the allegations that are being made. Um, but those, I think, are ancillary arguments. I think uh, Priscilla's real good argument is the, is the lack of delivery. Um, and I think even circumstantially, if Lisa Marie's argument is, I fired you in 2016. Well, then why did Priscilla continue to serve as trustee until Lisa Marie's death in, in 2023? If, if she, in fact, was fired and delivery was made, then mom would not have been on the accounts in 2017 or 18 or 19 or 20. Mom would have been fired. Accountants would have known. CPAs would have known. Lawyers would have known. Financial advisors would have known. So maybe it wasn't delivered. David, as of 2020, there was an estimate that the value of the Elvis Presley estate was $500 million. Presumably, uh, since then, now we, we, we're a couple of weeks away from the Oscars, right? We've got uh, Austin Butler nominated as Best Actor. I think the film is also nominated for Best Film. Presumably, the value has only increased in all the uh, in the wake of this of this film. You're in L.A. You represent a lot, a lot of high profile people in dealing with wills and estates. It never ceases to amaze me that um, be it the Prince estate, Elvis Presley, you know, 
there's these questions, right? I mean, why wouldn't you in dealing with such a valuable brand, if you were either the proponent of a change or the one that would be affected by the change, make it unequivocally clear what was going on, right? Have lawyers, have video, have a judge involved. I mean, make it unequivocal that when this person died, here was the procedure. Instead, this seems to be what you would expect in, you know, some backwoods family uh, dealing over a couple bucks. It boggles my mind that you're that this is subject to litigation, but maybe that's sort of inherent to the very nature of dealing with celebrities and, and this kind of money. I, I don't know. It's astonishing. Uh, you're right. In, in a state of this size, a family of this notoriety, why weren't they surrounded by individuals who are trying to give them quality advice, uh, telling them what to do to prevent these types of public debacles? Um, you know, some conspiracy theorists say perhaps this is what they intended, that they did want a public debacle, that they did want to create controversy. A lot of money is to be made. This is an industry. You know, there's lawyers and CPAs and forensic experts who are now going to be involved. And this could be a years long battle that millions and millions of dollars are going to be spent. And David, to that point, you know, being a trustee, maybe you could explain what, what's involved in being a trustee, because it sounds like something that, well, you're just sort of the steward of it and the actual people are involved. But in many ways, it's like it's running a business. And in this case, it's a half a billion dollar business. How much will the judge look into whether Lisa Marie is equipped with a business acumen to run this business? Now, that that all being said, you know, we know from prior dealings that Priscilla didn't do the greatest job. The estate had many issues over the last, you know, over over many years. She seemed to have right of the ship. But how important is it to look at whether uh, Lisa Marie can actually handle this job? And actually, not Lisa Marie, but Lisa Marie's uh, daughters in this case, Riley is the is the is the oldest one. How how well equipped Riley is to, to handle this? You know, um, the trusteeship is very important. It is the person who has the ultimate say. It's the person who signs on the dotted line. Um, you know, the buck stops with that individual. So uh, the judge is going to look closely to that individual. But when you have this size of an estate, this large uh, of an industry, it's not necessarily limited to that single person. The judge is going to look to see uh, who they're surrounded with, you know, who, who their board of directors is, who, who their cabinet is. And you're right, it does come down to business acumen, judgment and decision making. So if the individual is an 18 year old with limited experience, uh, limited maturity, it's probably not the best pick. But if it's somebody who has business experience and, and access to individuals who are experienced, then it, it, it makes the judge feel better in the decision-making. David, last question here, as Joe mentioned, this could take years. Um, what would make it uh, take longer or, or shorter? And is there any chance to resolve this issue, right? I mean, I'm a litigator, you know, I, I resolve cases every single day. Is there a chance that the parties work this out without the need to take it uh, further uh, legally? You know, I think this is a really easy case, and I actually don't see this going on for too many years. If there are skilled lawyers involved, if they can prove this delivery issue, and maybe they don't want to prove this delivery issue, they might just send this to mediation and resolve this quickly, um, which is what I think most of these cases end up never going to trial, that nine out of 10 end up resolving at mediation or behind closed doors. So I think it's likely that this one on this issue is going to resolve quickly. 
or should at the very least. Again, that's David Escobias of the law office of David Escobias out in California. David, thank you very much for the insight today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, in December of 2017, our next guest, Cleet Blakeman, was recognized as one of the 12 most fascinating lawyers by the Journal of the American Bar Association. And that's not only because Cleet Blakeman is partner of Carlson and Blakeman. He's a former Nebraska quarterback and current NFL referee with 15 years under his belt. He also officiated Super Bowl 50. Cleet joins us today. Cleet, thank you so much for being here today. Absolutely. Happy to be here, guys. Thank you. So this is really fascinating. We've had a lot of uh, over our nine years or so, lots of lawyers who do other things. And uh, we've actually had a couple of refs also. Um, and, and talk to us a little bit about how refereeing is similar to what you do in your everyday life. Some of the you know comparisons and how it's, of course, different in, in other respects. You know, I always tell people, actually, officiating makes me a better lawyer and a lawyer, lawyer makes me better as an official, too, because there's so much comparison and uh, cross, I guess, techniques relative to the both jobs that uh, it really works in. So I've been doing officiating overall now for 35 years. This is my 15, just finished my 15th year in the league. Um, and I've, of course, been practicing law for 30 years too. So it just is, uh, it's it's very complimentary. The, the Both, you know, one compliments the other and it's just kind of a it's been a great run and uh, really enjoying it actually it's just a it's nice to be done with the season I will say that right now because it gets to be a long grind after you know going six months every weekend on a plane in a hotel and restaurants and all that kind of stuff but so it's kind of a nice physically and mentally too uh, it gets to be a drain at the end but it's a it's a great passion of mine and uh, I say that both from actually both careers. Um, I still have a huge passion for practicing law and uh, enjoying the football side of it too. So Cleet, you, uh, your practice involves personal injury uh, for the most part. And, you know, you have negotiated some, you know, very large personal injury cases. You've tried, you know, many as well. And what, I guess what requires the greater degree of negotiation, you know, a big personal injury case or trying to uh, soothe an, an angry NFL coach who's yelling at you over your latest call? Uh, it's it's kind of boils down to people management in some way. It's just like, uh, you know, kind of calming situations in a lot of situations that whether it's my law clients who are, you know, looking for relief, looking to get help, looking to kind of maintain the getting through the legal process. And then, of course, the football field, as I say, is, we go, it's three hours of just complete chaos in, in many ways, but there's a lot of emotions, a lot riding on literally every play of every game. And so, you know, and, and there's pressure too, both on the coaches, the players, and, you know, on us as officials, there's a lot of, just a lot of uh, pressure going on. So sometimes I get in the courtroom, it's kind of like, oh, this is, this is kind of easy. It feels good in here. It's just a few of us. It's not, you know, a whole stadium full of people that you got to please and millions of people on TV that you got to please. It's just, it's just kind of a, my client and I going at it. So it's good. And obviously when you're standing in front of a jury or a judge and, you know, one of the key characteristics that you have to have to be successful in our business is being able to, as you said, react to new data, new information, uh, and do so quickly. And also, um, you know, uh, process that for your clients. So how have 
how has your experience as an NFL referee prepared you for, you know, those times in court where you're thrown something that you really weren't expecting and vice versa? How has your legal training uh, helped you on the field when you're dealing with maybe a unique call that you haven't seen before or, you know, Bill Belichick barking in your ear? Yeah. Well, it comes down to uh, sometimes in the courtroom, it's just, you know, um, there's so many similarities, I, I will say, between what I'm doing on, on the football field in the courtroom. And it's, uh, you know, it's thinking on your feet. It's a lot of times you've got to be prepared, both listening and then speaking relative to what what comes next. And um, so they really, truly do compliment each other. Like I said earlier, it's just one of those deals where I enjoy it. Uh, and a lot of times, you know, we'll get situations that uh, you got to adjust, man. You just got to adjust on your feet sometimes, whether it's on the field or in the courtroom too. It's, it's like, it just, it's, there's a whole lot of stimulus coming from a lot of different directions in both, both places. So uh, I do mean it when I say one, one helps me be better at the other. And it's been that way for a long time now. So I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying this thing. Sure. I think, uh, Cleet, I think a lot of our listeners probably believe that, you know, being uh, an NFL referee at the high level, that you perform at is a full-time job. So I think some people might be surprised that you're able to juggle both the demands uh, of being an NFL referee and also, you know, a busy practicing attorney. Talk to us about the time commitment involved in each and how you juggle both of those very demanding careers. So, you know, during the season, so we'll usually start our year pretty much first part of July and it will run all the way through until um, the end of, of January. And uh, his Super Bowl, of course, was just last week, so it's into February, too. But my weekly deal is, is uh, for football-wise, I will leave generally Saturday mornings for a Sunday game. If I got a game in Chicago on Sunday at, at noon, we're flying out. Everybody comes on my crew, flies into Chicago on Saturday, Saturday afternoon. And so we'll spend, uh, you know, everybody gets in, we connect up, we start meetings, we'll do spend most of Saturday afternoon and early evening uh, in meetings, getting prepared. But, um, and then once the game's over, usually I will, they'll take us straight from the stadium to the airport and we hop on a plane and come home. And usually most of the time, half the season, I'm probably home on Sunday nights. The rest of a Thursday night game, I come home Friday. But the reality is I, when I get home, I, you know, I transition back into, into father and lawyer and husband and everything else that goes on. So it's, it's that thing, but I'm doing something, um, you know, football, uh, all through basically all through the week. It might be an hour here. It might be two hours on Tuesday. It might be five hours on a Thursday. It just depends on what I have to get done for the game to prep for it. But that's usually done at night. Uh, you know, and I get up in the morning, take, take my kids to school and then, uh, head to the office. And I'm lawyer guy from, you know, from Monday through Friday. And so just tending to what I got to do with the clients and, and the courts and the judges and whomever else is uh, needing to take care of. So it's a busy, it's a juggle. And it is, I just say it's, it's seven days a week for about six months of the year, but it's a, it's a good blend and it's uh there's good breaks in between too. So I'm, I'm not done yet. This is my 15th year. I just finished with the league and uh, still got a few more left. I hope it's, but it's, it's that much enjoyable. Clee, what's the one thing of being a, an NFL referee that would surprise the average NFL fan? Probably is our dedication to the to the craft, so to speak. Is um, you know, there's one thing we go into a game, you, you just don't want to get anything wrong. You don't want to, 
cost one team another, you know, you just don't want to cost a game and have everybody talking about you. But in essence, a lot of times that's what it boils down to because fans, I tell people fans don't want to blame their team. They don't want to blame their coaches. They, they find an outlet and here's the outlet right here. You know, it becomes the refs, you know, and, and uh, it's a fast, fast, fast paced game. And so it's just human nature. They're, they're, we're not going to see everything. We're not going to be able to call everything. There's going to be moments where things get uh, in, a, in a state of confusion at times because of the, the hecticness of the, of the whole situation and the chaos that's going on. But it's, we try to like, get, we, in, in reality, we don't want to be involved in the outcome of the game. If you take anything away from that question is, is we're doing our job. And the best thing I, best way I can do my job is be, kind of that silent guy we go through and just work the game, manage the game, get it played. Both teams are, you know, are getting equal share and uh, flows well for TV and it's enjoyable. We walk away from it feeling good. You know, those are, that's kind of how we gauge ourselves. It's not a win loss or how many flags you threw or what, uh, if we had any issues and replay or anything like that for us, it's kind of like, um, it's a feel good component of it does you come out of a game you either kind of feel good about it or you kind of feel bad about it and it's just human nature with referee and it's just that's the way it is so more than ever we're seeing we've covered this extensively on legal face-off we're seeing a rise in um attacks on officials you know physical attacks verbal attacks um what are your feelings on this trend and also on the need to you know, perhaps make an example out of some of these parents and, you know, prosecute them to the full ex extent of the law. Yeah, I see it as a, just a bad trend. It just really is. It's kind of sad in many ways because I'm also, like I said, I'm a father. And my, my kids are 9 and 11, so I'm doing youth sports as a, as, as a spectator myself and I'll in the stands and I just, it's just bad in, a, in many ways. It's, it, you know, I haven't really had a horrible experience with it where I'm like, you know, where I've read horrible experiences in, in the newspapers and on, on news accounts, but that what's, what's happening is it's driving away the, the younger generations from wanting to get involved with officiating. So now it literally is, is a, as the older generation moves out of officiating, there's nobody to replace them. So the numbers are, 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 are hugely decreased as available officials. Cause no one's just, you know, young people that I, I don't want, I don't need to put up with that for, you know, 25 bucks or 50 bucks a game or whatever it is, I can't take the abuse from a parent or physically assault, you know, components of it. Sometimes it's that too. So really, really uh, never thought it would go this direction and become this, this bad, you know, and it just is kind of disappointing in many ways, but I hear it, I see it and you just can't control it, but I, I just gonna, you know, parents just need to kind of, step back and say, this is all about the kids, right? It's let the kids play it out. Let the kids learn, let them, you know, let them learn skills, let them, you know, dribbling, shooting in basketball or whatever, football, it's handling the, you know, passes and catches and everything else. But so it's not about the parents. And that's to me gets in the scope of things kind of drives, I think this situation we're dealing with and it's, it's, and it's all over. It's, it's every fifth, all the 50 states and, and even across the country, really, and across the world, I should say, in many ways. It's kind of sad. Yeah, I coach my kids flat. My my 13-year-old, he's a quarterback for our flag football, our school flag yeah. football team. I coach him. And, man, I hate to I hate to be the official officiating one of your games, uh, having to justify one of their calls to an NFL ref. But a couple of <laughs> questions, because this is really fascinating, Clay. Um, so you um, played in the, in the Sugar Bowl. 
You uh, played like Joe mentioned, you were quarterback at the University of Nebraska. You threw some touchdown passes in a 70 nothing drubbing of Kansas back <laughs> in the day. Uh, all that has to pale in comparison, though. You mentioned you've got kids to being a voice of an official in Madden. I mean, your kids must look at you like you're the world's you know greatest yeah. hero if you're if you're in Madden. I mean, you've got nine and eleven. They must be totally into Madden. And oh yeah. The first time they heard Dad's voice coming out of Madden, they must have been shocked. <laughs> yeah, and actually, my son who's nine, he's in the basement right now playing it with his buddy because it's <laughs> actually you can't see it here, but it's snowing like crazy yeah. here in Omaha, and so it's a snow day, no school, so they're down playing Madden right now. So you bring it up very timely. Yeah, it's going on like 10, 10 years now that I've been the voice. They uh, they. They brought me down to Orlando and they did all kinds of uh, taping and uh, it, it was not just verbal, but it was the movements, you know, going through the movements. I was in one of the black suits with the white balls on them doing all this, you know, those kind of movements and everything else. So it's one of those things. It's, it's been kind of cool because my, my son, more than anything else, he can kind of, you know, my dad's on that. Then his buddies go home and they start listening to the game on uh, Madden. They're like, yeah, that is his voice. I guess it is. So. There it is. Yeah. I got that's that feather, feather in my hat. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. Here's my last, I tell, I told my kid, by the way, I was in man and they didn't believe me when, when they were young, but here's my last question. I could ask you hundreds, but you know, we all, we, we spent, um, everyone watched the Super Bowl, and there was a long time to, on that one catch, whether it was a catch or not as a fan, what the hell's a catch cleat? Isn't a catch. Like, is it too simple to say a catch is when they catch the ball as a fan? I'll just tell you. And you know, I've, I'm a huge Bears fan, a season ticket holder, watch all the games. Like, how much time do we need to debate whether a catch is a catch? If he catches it, it's a catch. No? Yeah, I know. I know this that the catch term became it started getting convoluted going as four or five years back. And it just is kind of it never we've never got a clean version of what actually is a catch because there's there's you know triple components to it and everything else. So you know, when I go when I go into the box and a replay, I go into the box and we're looking at it and engaging it. It really is to me. I'm kind of like you. I'm like subjective. I'm like it's, it feels like a catch to me. You know, mm-hmm. it might. Yeah, there's a maybe a little movement here or there, but it doesn't mean he lost control or possession of the ball. Um, so there's some things that I don't know if it'll ever come back to be an easy crystal clear kind of definition that we all know. Okay, this fits in this category. It's a catch. I don't know if we'll ever get back to that, but it's it's a constant kind of tweaking of the system with replay and what we can do with it and how I know how we can keep it going and at the same time keep the game going, you know, because uh, there's nothing nothing worse than locking a game down for two and a half three minutes while while the refs over there looking in the box and you know you're, you're trying to make a decision and all that. So just a part of the game. I think we're continuing. I say we, but I mean more, mostly the competition committee, our bosses in New York, and doing all that, trying to tweak that to continually kind of make it better from a TV broadcast standpoint. So, uh, but I'm with you. Catch should be a catch. And, Let's go. All right. I got one last question. I know you said that was my last yeah. one, but you know, you work Super Bowl 50, as Joe mentioned, right? Um, yes. The last Super Bowl a couple of days ago, many would say was improperly decided on that holding penalty. Personally, as an avid football fan, I don't buy the idea that you have to put on someone like you the pressure of deciding at what point in the game is a call a non-call. In other words, I told this to my son. I said, a call is a call. Like a ref has to you know, imagine the pressure on you or a ref in the Super Bowl to make the right call. And you're laser focused on whether that's holding or not. 
And yeah. you can, in my opinion, be also burdened with the responsibility of deciding, well, this is two minutes. We shouldn't decide the Super Bowl on this call. What if it's three minutes? What if it's four minutes? That, to me, is ridiculous. I'm sure you have some strong feelings on that. To me, that was a clear hold, and it's a penalty, whether it's a minute left or, you know, 50 minutes left. Yeah. No, you're dead on. You're absolutely right. We, we you know, we, people kind of saying, well, that's too big a call to make at that particular time in the game. Well, well, it could have taken a, a, an easy touchdown away from the Chiefs, you know, had he, had he been able to make a clean break out and, and right. get down the sideline, he made it. You know. So there's, there's always those criteria of it's a thousand different what ifs, but, but um, yeah, I mean, we, we don't work the game. You know, people think we, we go in with some kind of skip, sketch, you know, a script that we're going to follow and everything. No, we go in, it's, it's, once we kick off, it's usually 175 plays we're working in a game on average, and every play could bring something new, brand new to the table, right? And so whether it happens first quarter or in this case, last fourth quarter of the minute and a half to go, you just got to be on your toes and, and say, is it enough? Is it clear and obvious? Is there material restrictions? And it was refreshing actually when the player, the DB came out yes. and said, yeah, you know, I held him. I'm going to take, I take responsibility. I'm not going to push it off on anybody else. From my perspective, I sat back and said, that's, you don't get that very often. Actually, I don't know if uh, we get that ever, but for him to say that was very refreshing from the standpoint of, yeah, people, I grabbed him and I, it was on me. And, you know, sometimes you get caught, sometimes I get away with it, but this one I got caught and it was just a, at a critical time, but it's just a, it was a great game. I mean, and I don't think that that one play that one at the end didn't ruin the game at all. It uh, kind of set it up for more drama a little bit, but it still was a fantastic game. I thought, and I was on my couch in the basement watching it on the big screen. So it was good. By the way, my boy is a huge bears fan. So for all you Chicago people out there, uh, he's, he loves the Chicago bears. Well, hey, it's a good time for your son to check out <laughs> the, 85, the greatest team in football history, a documentary on the 85 Bears that I actually happen to produce. It's available right now on Amazon Prime. Your son, you know, it's a distant memory. These people like the fridge and pain, but learn that kid some history and take a look at uh, our film on Amazon Prime. Is it on Amazon Prime now? As we speak. Okay. Well, it's just like I said, it's a snow day, so we might just go go ahead and dial it up this afternoon. How about that? All right. Remember, four stars, five stars. We'll take we'll take them all. Uh, there you go. There you go. And we'll take as many more Bears fans on the bandwagon as we can get. Please, thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, that is, Cleet, thank you guys. that is Cleet Blakeman, partner of Carlson and Blakeman and NFL referee. Thank you very much for the insight, Cleet. Exactly. Appreciate it very much. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Downey and Lenkoff, a firm with offices in Illinois, Indiana and Wisconsin. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like McDonald's, Target, Macy's, Wendy's, and the Chicago Bears for his zealous advocacy and outstanding litigation results. Rich's many accolades include being named as an Illinois super lawyer from 2015 to present and leading lawyer from 2012 to present. These are designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, serving on the Legal Prep Charter Academy Advisory Board and the Northern Illinois University College of Law Board of Visitors. Rich is also a producer with credits including 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and Mike Ditka. Renegades, a Caesars Palace production starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon, Rock of Ages, and Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel in Concert. 
In addition to hosting WGN's Legal Faceoff since 2014, Rich serves as a legal analyst for a variety of media outlets. Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Downey and & Lenkoff, please visit dl-firm.com. Welcome back to the Legal Grab Bag here on the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio. It's time to welcome in our two esteemed guests. We start with Tony Tate as we welcome her back, founder of Corporate Coffee, a group that encourages, empowers, and educates corporate women of color. Find out more at corporatecoffee.org. Tony, welcome back. Great to see you again. Thank you. Glad to be here. And we also welcome in Domati Pongo, award-winning journalist, host of MTV's True Life Crime and MTV News. Yeah, he, he used to work with us at WGN Radio, but now keep an eye out for his new show with MTV and the Smithsonian Channel to find the next great artist called The Exhibit. Domati, great to see you, man. Great to see you as always, Joe Rich. Great to be here and Tony, good to meet. Nice and to one of our first ever uh, grab bag guests, Domati. So, so happy to have you back. I, I need a certificate or something. I need a frame. That's right. <laughs> That was back when we were turning the camera like this and, and we were putting it out on the World Wide Web. Typewriters clicking away in the newsroom. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, have, to, uh, we'll have to compare the, the bookends of Domati's visits here on the legal grab bag. All right, Rich, let's get started. And we'll start with the latest of the Alex Murdoch's double murder trial. Yeah, I mean, this case obviously is uh, going on now for a few weeks. The prosecution seems to be winding down their case. The big question uh, is, is, you know, as in all high profile cases, especially murder cases, is whether the defendant will testify. In this case, we've seen lots of video of Alex Murdaugh, who is the former lawyer who is accused of killing his wife and his son in a very brutal shooting. Um, uh, whether he'll testify, you know, we've seen lots of video, like I said, of him, uh, from that day. Uh, crying, uh, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about the words he used, whether those implicate him, uh, whether a jury will believe that he was not at all involved or whether, as prosecutors allege, Tony, that he uh, was involved in this shooting because he wanted to cover up uh, a lot of financial improprieties. He was stealing, allegedly, from his firm. We've heard lots of testimony about that. Um what interested me over the last couple of days was some testimony by his sister-in-law, where she testified that Murdoch allegedly said that his wife and son did not suffer in the killing. You know, you wonder how someone who was not at all involved, who did not hear about this murder until police talked to him, you know, uh, hours later, whether he knew that they suffered. That seems to be some damaging evidence. but. You know, whether he'll testify is such a huge decision because obviously as a prosecutor, you want to take a crack at the defendant. You want to, you know, cross-examine them. The general rule, Tony, is that you don't put your defendant on the stand because it can only hurt you. And especially when you consider the burden of proof is all on the state, right? The defendant can say nothing and still technically win. You don't want to give ammunition to the prosecutors that they would otherwise have. So I don't know how close you're following this trial, but knowing what you know up until this point, if you were his attorney, would you put him on the stand? I would not. Um, I think for the most part, I, I, I'm to, I, and I'll go off kind of the grid and say this. I think in the court of public opinion, 
he's guilty. Um, I think it's up to his attorney to put enough reasonable doubt um, based on the evidence um, with, with the jury and, and um, throw an alley-oop and, and probably hope that he gets off on a technicality. Um, there was some um, other evidence of some DNA that was under uh, his wife's nails that, you know, are unidentified. Um, and for the most part, he's claiming amnesia. You know, um, there were there were clothes that he had on in this video that weren't, that haven't been found. You know, so it just, if I were his attorney, I, I would not put him on the stand, no. Dominique, this is right in your wheelhouse. True life crimes, right? This one is is the current, you know, crime of the century, so to speak. Uh, what are your thoughts on how it has gone so far and on the videos that we've seen? Do you find those incriminating? I think he'd be doing himself no favors if he put himself on that stand because he's already said things that were inconsistent with the Snapchat video that we saw from the son's cell phone. And it in cases like this, especially, you know, Tony brings up the court of public opinion in most true life crime cases, the true crime cases that I've had a chance to look at. It's the person closest to the family. And the obvious answer sometimes is the actual truth. And in this case, it's going to be very hard to kind of he's playing a situation where the defense is going to have to put the burden, as you said, on the state to prove what he did. But outside of that, Everything doesn't seem like it's voted in his favor. There are inconsistencies. Putting himself on the stand and just opening himself up to cross-examination is going to rip his story apart. I think you both raised such good points uh, about, you know, the court of public opinion, because these trials are different, obviously, than they were even a few years ago, right? Before social media, before everyone in the world is TikToking, before social media sleuths, right? In addition to the jury, we've got millions and millions of people out there on the internet, on YouTube, on Snapchat, analyzing everything he says, looking at every nook and cranny of evidence out there, every video. And, you know, you could tell, you could sequester the jury, you could tell them all you want not to look at videos, not to look at social media. They are, right? Uh, it's impossible not to penetrate them. So it's difficult uh, to, to think that all of this evidence that we're seeing isn't penetrating the jury. So I think you're right. I think uh, already he has almost been convicted on social media. That's not a great thing yeah. either, right? You want the jury system right. to be based on the evidence, but uh, I agree but with what so far is, is pretty incriminating. Yeah. Rich, unfortunately, yeah, go ahead, yeah, go ahead, Tony. Just one more comment. And there's also other backstories to this family story as well. So although they are, you know, esteemed in the legal community, you know, we're, we're in South Carolina, but, you know, there was a story of like a former a housekeeper that ended up, you know, um, dead and, and some payments that were to go to her family. So it's just, there's so, so many other stories that are attached to this, that it gets pretty, pretty damning, I would say. No, there's no question. It's, yeah. Like one of the side stories is just the privilege of this family who I think dating back three generations had held this, uh, held this seat. And, you know, this guy, I mean, it wasn't enough that he was a prominent lawyer. He was stealing from his own law firm, right? I mean, it's it, yeah, it just shows you how. Um, and I think that's a, that's an interesting storyline, Tony, because I think if you're on the jury and you think, you know, this guy thought he could steal from his company. He thought, uh, you know, he was above the law and he thought he could shoot two people and get away with it. We're not going to let that happen. So I think that's a really compelling storyline. And allegedly us. hire someone to shoot him. <laughs> Right, right. And miss. <laughs> so that that's a whole it's it's a this is a circus. Um, Absolutely. 
Rich, unfortunately, we get a little, little bit more local for another tragedy as the father of the Highland Park mass shooting suspect is being indicted by a grand jury. Yeah, yesterday in Highland Park, um, in the wake of, of course, the July 4th shooting that killed seven people, uh, the father of the shooter, we're not going to mention the name, but the father of the shooter was indicted by a grand jury, as you mentioned, seven counts of reckless conduct, Joe. And and, and the allegation here goes that um, the father should have known, given the history of several episodes involving the shooter. This is not a one-time thing. Prior to Highland Park, uh, Domini, the, uh, the shooter had, uh, let's see, threatened suicide with a machete. He had threatened yep. to, quote, kill everyone, close quote. The police had visited his home, and they they found 16 uh, knives, um, swords, like I said, a machete. Even despite all of that, the father, who was charged, signed off on the FOID card. In Illinois, at 21, you could apply and very easily get a, a FOID card, which allows you to carry a gun. But if you're under 21, a parent or a guardian can sign off on your application. And the standard is whether the police, because it's the Illinois State Police who ultimately hand out this card and decide on your application, whether the applicant uh, possesses a clear and present danger. They decided, despite everything I said, that he wasn't. So I think there's multiple layers of responsibility here, right? I certainly think it's the right charge for the father. How could you sign off on that individual uh, possessing a gun, knowing everything yeah. that we... And by the way, that's only what we know as a public. Exactly. Right? There's got to be hundreds of examples of this guy having issues that we don't know about. But also, I think it's important to mention, the police dropped the ball in giving this guy a FOID card, right? So I think there's lots of liability. By the way, there's civil liability as well in Illinois for damages resulting from negligent um, signing of that card. But this is a criminal case. I think it's the right move. Uh, what do you think? Absolutely the right move. I think there's going to have to be some sort of accountability because we keep seeing this happen again and again. And it's so easy to forget that what's happening right now is a uniquely American problem. Other developed nations don't deal with gun crime at this rate. And unless we start to figure out more creative ways to hold different people accountable within those households, the kid's 19. If he, if he wants a gun, he can't wait two years. You thought it was a good idea, given everything that you just laid out. All of these cases of mental instability. Not only did you think it was a good idea for him to have a gun, but you thought it was so imperative that he couldn't wait two years to get one. And then the kind of weapons that we get, these aren't even weapons that are used for hunting. I mean, like we talk about some of these weapons, you're destroying the meat. So you can't say it's for hunting. It's purely for either sport or to hurt other human beings. And so I don't know how you look at that and decide that this kid needs a gun. But the other piece of it, which you bring up, Rich, that is, that's important, is accountability isn't just for the parents and the guardians of these folks who end up with guns in their hands, but how do we create systems where universal background checks actually make sense? So many cases, even this shooting in Michigan, Michigan State University, just a, a little digging, one reporter finds out that the neighbors have been complaining about this guy uh, shooting this gun off, his neighbor said that he was unstable. Every single one of these cases, you typically see that it points to a history of instability. So it, unless we get creative about who's held accountable, this is going to keep happening. You mentioned really a lot to unpack. Very awesome points, uh, Dobie. But you mentioned uh, Michigan State, what we're, we're dealing with now a, lot, a couple of days ago. Uh, Tony, what's interesting, unfortunately, is that uh, there are several uh, several students who were not thankfully killed in Michigan State, but who were there on campus who were also present in Oxford, Michigan, a couple of years ago when there was a shooting there. And what's of note to this case, what's relevant to the father of the Highland Park shooter, is that 
the parents in that case were also charged. Those were two parents who were charged with facilitating the uh, the shooting. And to Dominic's point, I think like reckless conduct, while that carries with conviction and pretty significant uh, jail time, that's the bare minimum. I personally think you should take it a step further and charge these people as as accessories to murder. If that was one of my children in the school who got shot, that's the least uh, of which I would want, right? So I think it's the right charge. It's an uphill battle legally, admittedly, but that is the trend nationwide. We also see there'll be some liability for the uh, parents of the six-year-old who shot the teacher in Virginia. Yes. Yes. Even though in that case, the gun was locked, it was on a shelf. How are, How does this keep happening? Yeah, there and there is another case um, that that was brought up recently, and and I can't I can't remember the state right now, but there is a mother, another six year old had had brought a gun, and this gun was illegally purchased, and and the mother is being charged in that case as well. So yes, uh, I think the thoughts and prayers. I think that people are getting worn out with that statement when it comes to gun violence, and they're looking for action and they're looking for things to change. And I think that this is one avenue to affect some change is saying, you know, broadening out the responsibility. Joe, is it overcharging? Anyone want to take the opposite position that, you know, it's the sole responsibility of the individual who committed these crimes and not the parent's responsibility? I mean, that's certainly an argument. And there's a reason why you don't see these charges more. It is an uphill battle. Prosecutors don't like charging cases they can't win. But again, I think the trend is to charge these parents. I think it's the right one. But there's certainly an argument that, you know, it's not the right decision. Yeah, there might be, but I, I don't have it. Um, as as Domati mentioned, you got to get creative and you got to hold these people accountable because at the end of the day, the parents are in charge and the parents are the ones that can have some hold back on this. And it, it just kind of continues with, again, what Domati said, you know, these guns are not for hunting. They are for, like he said, something that you use for fun in your spare time or to harm mass amounts of people in one quick setting. And I'll, I'll never understand that. Even if, you know, you are the safest person in the world and you, you operate with these guns and all you do is clean them. And, and it's, it's part of a, a hobby that you do. Okay. But if it were to be that there are more restrictions on it, what do you lose out on a hobby? And there are so many much, there are so many more benefits of it on the other side. Yeah, so. and 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 perfectly stated, Joe. And and nobody like all we're asking for is not to give someone like that a gun. How about taking the additional step? How about arresting a parent who doesn't put that kid away or or report him to the police or warn the school? I mean, we're not even talking about those additional responsibilities that any one of us would engage in, right? right? If my kid right. had sixteen knives and was threatening, you know, uh, a suicide and was threatening, I mean, I would do a lot more than. Give them a gun. I mean, it seems like the right. bare minimum of parental responsibility is is, is the, lower. The bar than is so low. The bar is on the floor right now. I guess uh, to your earlier question, if there was one consideration, and, and even so, just just for the sake of argument, would it set uh, a troubling precedent? Right, if the parent of a troubled teen, um, you know, ends up doing hard time because of something their kid did, but again. I'm being hypocritical in my own point because at the end of the day, it's a teenager. No matter what a child does, ultimately it's the parent's responsibility. So even if you think about, you know, a, a well-meaning parent whose son or daughter does something 
you know, unforgiven, should that parent be held accountable? At the end of the day, lives were lost and, and somebody's got to be held to account for that. So I, I tried to think about it at, at, like, well, what if what if there's a troubling president? But it's I don't think there's much, much argument to be made on the opposite end of that. And there's just a difference of doing nothing and creating avenues for the acquisition of a gun. Um, I, right. I, guess, I guess we can move on from this. Uh, Rich, most people would consider a defamation lawsuit as a detriment. But Pat McAfee is somewhat celebrating his. Well, yeah, you know, Brett Favre hasn't been charged with a crime yet. Brett Favre, of course, the uh, as a Bears fan, the hated former uh, Packer among some other, uh, other teams. But uh, he hasn't been charged yet, but he is uh, in the middle of a fairly uh, substantial allegation that he was involved in the misappropriation of something like $77 million of state money that would otherwise go to feeding uh, uh, underprivileged people in that state. We know that Mississippi is you know, one of the uh, poorest states in the country, one of the most need of uh, public funds for assistance. Instead of that money going to these families in need, many of whom are families of color, the money went to uh, a, a school, a university that his daughter went to to build a volleyball facility. Uh, there's also an allegation that a private company that Brett Favre started to deal with concussions got a lot of those funds. Now, listen, um, you know, uh, it's nice to build a building on a university campus. Volleyball is a nice sport, but certainly I don't think anyone could defend the, the, the money that should be going to feed hungry people in Mississippi going to that. So that's the backstory. What's bringing us to this defamation action? Brett Favre has sued Pat McAfee, who's a former uh, New Orleans saint and now hosts a podcast uh, for defamation, alleging that the allegations are not true. We know that the ultimate defense Tony, to a defamation case, is the truth. So if Brett Favre is ultimately convicted, this goes away. But Brett Favre is saying that basically, you know, don't speak about me in this way because it's not true. A couple of things that you got to mention when you talk about the story are the most prominent guest on Pat McAfee's podcast is who? Aaron Rodgers. We know there's no love lost between Aaron Rodgers and Brett Favre, the man who, were, who preceded him. Um, and also, uh, Pat McAfee is also, or I mean, Brett Favre was also sued Shannon Sharp, whose brother used to catch passes, Sterling Sharp from Bedfar. So lots going on here. But um, what, what's your thoughts on this defamation action, Tony? Well, uh, this it doesn't look good. Um, another part of this, too, uh, were these text messages that were between um, Brett Favre and I believe the governor. And, and he was asking, you know, well, if I'm given this money, can they tell? Can people tell where it's coming? It just it doesn't look good. Brett. And if um, if I'm not mistaken, didn't he pay back a portion of some? And what has brought this on is that there was like some um, some tax or something that had acquired that he didn't pay. And then this is what's, you know, causing um, him to be brought in, in into court. But I, I want to kind of ask this question, and it's not about this case in particular, but it involves broader things as a whole. What a podcast, you know, what of people being able to speak, you know, how they feel, you know, um, or or their opinion, let's say it like that. Now, I know that this host is saying, um, McAfee's saying he's put a lot of allegedly, some of the things that I, statements that I read from him didn't say allegedly, maybe he said that in the very beginning, and then he just went off and relied on the previous allegedly and didn't come back. But, but how, how does this play out? Um, if, 
celebrities or people are able to bring these defamation suits against people just speaking their opinion in on a public platform. Yeah, I think it's a good point, right? I mean, uh, Domini, you, you, you want to encourage uh, free speech, right? The First Amendment protects such speech. But, you know, defamation, it, that doesn't mean that you're allowed to defame someone. So there is some, you know, some yeah. basis to uh, that argument that, that you know, if, if it is, in fact, not true. But this is a le- I, in my opinion, this is the last thing Brett Favre needs to be worried about. Like, worry about defending yourself. Uh, there, you know, there's 77 million reasons why he should not be wasting his time with this lawsuit. Um, but he's pursuing it. By the way, the, the thing that really interested me when I read the complaint was Brett Favre's middle name. I don't want to take a guess from Brett Favre. It's the, it's the least likely name you'd ever expect. It's Brett Lorenzo Favre. If you Wait, Brett Favre? On, yeah, Brett Lorenzo Favre <laughs> is the name on the complaint. I I would win some money on, on, on that bet. But um, yeah, Dominic, what are your thoughts on this one? Man, I didn't know that was Lorenzo. I'm stuck on that. We buried the lead. Hello. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but no, I mean, I think the real rub here in, in terms of, well, it's a couple of things because it's scary when you think about journalists reporting on stories. And not that Pat McAfee is necessarily a journalist and Shannon Sharp, of course, is more of a commentator uh, and, and broadcaster. But it's a slippery slope when you start to try to penalize folks for discussing stories. And so that's that's encroaching on our on what we do in this business. But then you have cases like with Cardi B, who sued this blogger named Tasha Mack uh, for defaming her character and spreading false rumors about, you know, uh, her health history. Right. And so it's a fine line between commentary and people who have an axe to grind with someone perpetuating rumors. And uh, I think it's well within Favre's right to go ahead and file a lawsuit, whether that it sends a message, whether it's successful or not. Uh, But at the end of the day, we really need to find out, did he actually know that those funds would be taken from that needy family and misappropriated in this way. And I think the thing that has frustrated me around how the story was covered is that it wasn't covered enough. And so the fact that Shannon Sharpen and some of these folks are actually talking about it and then they're being penalized for it doesn't bode well for the for, for the journalism industry. But I do think public figures should be protected from folks uh, spreading rumors about them in tabloid like fashion. Who the hell invited Brett Favre? Anyone <laughs> know what, what movie that's from? Right. Something about Mary. There we go. And a boy. Yes. Let's uh, hey, speaking about speaking about movies uh, from the many Brett Favre films. By the way. Yes, yes. Uh, Favre. Uh, speaking of movies, Rich, a story we've been following along since the beginning, but uh, quite the development. They're resuming the filming of Alec Baldwin's movie Rust, where a producer was shot and killed. I mean, this was not surprising. It came out yesterday. We were expecting it. But, you know, it always is. Sort of, you have to sort of think about it for a second. Oh, so they're going to continue filming on a set where the cinematographer was shot dead, and Alec Bar- Alec Baldwin, the star and producer, has been charged. That's a little weird, right? Um, but one of the reasons I think they're continuing. I mean, at the you know, at the end of the day, they're trying to make money on this film, which might seem a little bit like macabre, right? Given that, given the shooting, but. What's interesting to remember is that in the wake of the civil lawsuit that was filed by Hutchins' husband, the surviving widower, he settled that civil case. And as part of that, he was made a producer on the film. So, you know, he's incentivized financially for the film to not only be completed, but be released and make some money. 
Um, you somewhat understand that and perhaps sympathize with this widower and 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 his son. And let's let's face it, I mean, this film would have otherwise probably be a direct to you know streamer that would have made a little bit of money. There is a morbid curiosity about it. I mean, this film will be seen by a lot of people who would otherwise ignore it. Like it or not, that's the way the world is. So I understand why it's being completed. Um, who knows if Alec Baldwin will complete it before he, you know, uh, stands trial on the charges he's been faced with. Um, but yeah, certainly, uh, certainly interesting. Nobody, uh, this is also your house. You're on the Hollywood beat. What are your thoughts on this? Hutchins' husband also claims that his wife would have wanted the film to be complete, that she poured her all into it, so he wants to see it through. But, and, and I can hear it in your voice, it does feel so icky yeah. for, uh, for the widower to then become an executive producer. Now, they did have, you know, in, in, in a quick statement between he and Baldwin, they did come to some agreement, and he said that, you know, Baldwin was contrite and and that they're moving forward and doing this as part of her legacy. But it does kind of feel opportunistic. And I don't even know if, if I'm on that set, if I'm an actor on this film, or a producer on this film, a crew member, I don't know if I want to see this through for the sake of her memory or if I'm uncomfortable because the, the set is tainted. It's very, it's very, it used to, macabre is the right word. And, and, Fortunately or unfortunately, we're all going to watch out of curiosity. When this movie comes out, we're going to see what the fuss is about. Yeah, definitely. And, and, and Tony, uh, you know, the, the widower, the surviving husband, it's kind of interesting when you look at his statements, because he did, in the wake of the uh, settlement of the civil case, say that he's not interested in placing blame. This was a tragic accident. But then when Alec Baldwin was charged criminally, he said he supported that. Um, so, you know, I'm not sure how that would be seen by a jury, but, um, yeah, I'm anxious to see how this case develops and how, you know, the film looks when it's, when it's done. Definitely. This is definitely conflicting. Um, uh, and, and it seems like the husband's statements are speaking out of both sides, you know, of, of his, of his neck. I, me personally, my personal opinion, I, I just, I don't think it's a good look. Um, in my opinion, um, to move forward, um, for Alec Baldwin to move forward, you know, even though, um, and, and you guys speak of like the blessing of the, the, uh, the husband, I wasn't even aware of that. So to, if most of the general public probably wouldn't have even known, you know, that the husband was, you know, okay. And, and moving forward with this. So it just, it's just not a good look. Um, so I, I, I don't support the decision to move forward with the movie. I will say too, and along those lines too, I'm, I'm thinking about well, who who should be held accountable now that, of course, Alec Baldwin also being charged. Um, there were stories about the inexperience of the people who were in charge of holding the arms on set, and I, I like I like that this case is being looked into in more detail. But I can't imagine, you know, I, I've been on sets where the thing that is handed to me has never been a weapon. But it never occurs to me to think about the quality of the thing that's being handed to me to do my job. If I get a pen, I don't really even pay attention to whether it's a blue or black pen. I'm just going to use it. Right. And so if I use it and it ends up damaging something, this is a terrible analogy. But I, am I responsible for that or the person who handed it to me? And so I, I think that is what's really unnerving about this. And if I was Ali Baldwin, I don't even know that I would want to continue 
this this is a whole traumatic experience. So it's it's really odd to me. I don't know. I I, I, I guess I'm trying to parse my words, but I'm just gonna say it. If I kill somebody on set, I don't want to be a part of it. If my wife is killed, there's a part of a, a movie. At the end of the day, it's just a movie. There's not enough money you can pay. There's not an EP credit you can give me that is going to make that okay. And uh, and, and it, it makes me question the integrity of all of those involved. Just my personal uh, opinion. And imagine that new cinematographer. She's got to be, he or she's got to be worried. I mean, on the, good I, I, on the positive side, it's probably going to be one of the safer sets in, in history, right? I mean, they're probably now going to, uh, actually, you know, do the basics that are required of any movie set, and then go a little bit, a little bit farther. But yeah, it's, it's, have, have you guys been seeing this conversation about nepo babies that have been taking over social media and stuff like that? Just uh, no. about nepotism in Hollywood. So it was a viral thing where people were talking about all of these actors who have become a su- successful that we didn't know their parents were 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 famous and stuff. Our generation might know, but right. kids might not know, right? I bring that up because the the arms bearer or the person who's in charge of prop management with these weapons is referred and connected and not necessarily according to reports, uh, not necessarily the right person for the job or experienced enough to be dealing with these types of things. So on the other hand, I hope this starts a serious conversation about how crew members are hired on these sets. So we're not just bringing our friends and, and all these different folks is, uh, on these jobs that have high, high, you know, risk. And so, you know, like you said, moving forward, this is not only going to be the safest set ever, but, uh, I, I, hopefully Hollywood is paying more attention to those things and opening up those opportunities to the people who really deserve them instead of somebody's niece, cousin, or friend. Well, and also think about everyone who's going to see that movie or has seen the movie. It, it's not even going to be, oh, I saw that movie, Rust. Oh, I saw that movie where Alec Baldwin accidentally, you know, yeah. that that movie. You know, that's, that's a whole right. conversation. Any story of it is going to be that and that alone. Mm-hmm. Somebody should want to be attached to that. That's crazy. <laughs> we are moving along to a Singapore man who might be giving hope to all those single men who have been thrown into the friend zone. He has gone far enough to sue the woman that placed him there, Rich. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, <laughs> a laugh at this one. Uh, just take the L, buddy. I mean, this is a guy in Singapore who uh, is suing for what more than three million American dollars in damages. From uh, he alleges that a woman saw him only as a friend and caused him some emotional trauma and and damaged his stellar reputation. This is someone named Kay Keshwigan, and he says that uh, the damages are to cover his loss of earnings and investments, as well as rehabilitation and therapy to re- to recover from the trauma he sustained. Um, and I guess this is going to go to trial next week, according to our sources in the Philippines, Joe, according to our Philippines correspondent. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I support it. Okay. You know, take that but, $3 million and heal, brother. You know? Yeah, okay, we're going to disagree on this one. Tell me, I wish I had some people I could sue right now, man. Right? <laughs> Talk to us why it's a good lawsuit. Why, why would you give this guy $3 million bucks? Uh, do, have you been in the friend zone before? It's not the place to be. Anybody who has been relegated to the devastating embodiment of the friend zone deserves some type of compensation. You know, dial one eight hundred Rich Linkov if you feel you've been wrong. Three million dollars, really? Three million dollars. Oh, that's a bargain. That's the least that she, he should get. 
because the heart is priceless. Okay. Oh, a broken oh, heart has no price tag. You deserve I will not agree with this. No, this is Tony's not buying it. Tony's not buying it. No, no. No, I just I mean, so he's gonna so he's alleging damages of I guess mental anguish and loss of revenue. I mean, really, this is these are matters of the heart, not matters of the court. And I just, you know, the thing that stood out to me too was that she has uh she filed a restraining order against him. So yeah. my question was what came first, the chicken or the egg? Like, did she file the suit before or after? You know, is, is this him? you know, angrily retaliating because she did this or is he embarrassed? Like there's too many, in my opinion, emotion involved in this case and like not enough legal basis. I mean, well, there's so. definitely we're laughing about it, but there's definitely some undertones when you look at the backstory and, and what you're saying that there's some undertones here of some abuse, right? And some bullying and, you know, he couldn't win her affections the normal way. So now he's going to go after her legally. And presumably given his background, it seems like he's got more resources than she does. Thankfully, there's been some, you know, groups coming out to support her. But yeah, I mean, this strikes me as just, you know, some guy who was, uh, uh, you know, probably rightfully so shunned by this woman and he can't just move on. He's got to take a step further. Just just deal with it, buddy. There's probably a reason why you're in the friend zone. And speaking about his reputation and how hard is it for him to get a date now? What woman is going to date this, this, this loser? No one that he's going to sue her. He's in the red zone now. Give it up, bro. <laughs> no, never, you're no. never swiping left. You're never getting swiped left. Yeah, ever. No, I'm, I was being cheeky, but I mean, it, it's funny though. This case is rooted in, in that that misogyny that says that you're entitled to a woman's affection yeah. and attention. You know what I'm saying? Like, who, who told you that you had to that she even had to be your friend at all, right? And then it it begs the question. I actually didn't know about the uh, restraining order piece, but it begs the question: Was he ever a friend, or was he someone who just wouldn't leave her alone? So she was nice enough to keep him at bay. And so that's like anyone who's you know, sorted enough to actually take this to court, probably was never your friend to begin with because who wants to embezzle three million from their friends? So was he ever friend zone or was this just a, a stalker who got too close? You know what I'm saying? You know, this is a uniquely, uh, a, a, Joe, this is a probably unique to our times. Back in the day, you know, I used to go up to someone of the opposite sex or of the same sex and you'd be introduced to them and you'd give them your number and, and all they did to blow you off was they, they'd give you the wrong number and that was it. Right. That was how you were ghosted back in back in the 80s and 90s. And, you know, this guy is making his tweets and Facebook status. Oh, nice guys never win. It's it, we, we yeah. we've never given a chance. Yeah. <laughs> Little do we know he's he's suing the person that uh, didn't find him uh, uh, courtship appropriate. This is well, funny on the surface, but it's disturbing under yeah. the under it. Yeah, um, when you get beneath the surface, it's for disturbing. sure, for sure. No, for sure. Well, let's uh, let's move on to more heartbreak. And a lot of times, Rich, when we talk about divorces, we lead to the phrase, "Well, let's think about the children." What about the tri- children? What this time? What about the nanny? Because now she's suing the couple of Jason Sudeikis and Olivia Wilde for getting caught in the middle of their breakup. These are these are champagne problems. Uh, Domini, you're a king of, of the red carpet. So you know, this is probably just par for the course for you because you cover every event. You were at the Grammys, right? Uh, MTV Music Awards. Uh, so you see all the entourages of every celebrity. But yeah, in this case, I want to get your perspective. But in this case, Olivia Wilde, a uh, very prominent actress and, uh, and director, 
uh, and recently <laughs> what broke up with, with Harry Styles. Uh, and Jason Sudeikis, the ex-SNL actor who's uh, now starring in season three of Ted Lasso coming out here in a, a few weeks. Um, they broke up, very high-profile divorce. We covered on this show, by the way, the uh, first ever uh, service of divorce papers in a uh, large venue. Uh, Olivia Wilde was handed with her divorce papers in this. She was addressing theater owners, and that caused a lot of uh, issues. But so not only are, are they in the middle of this breakup, but uh, their nanny, as you mentioned, has filed a lawsuit claiming that she suffered severe anxiety over the breakup, over not just the breakup, but over the treatment and some of the uh, alleged mistreatment during the end part of their relationship, but also because of the breakup. And yeah, this is a uniquely Hollywood problem when you got to worry about not just you and your, your family and your kids. We understand how that could breakup could cause emotional trauma to them, but the nanny, come on. Yeah. I, I don't know if I'm uh, qualified to be the Hollywood correspondent, but I will wear that out proudly. And based uh, on my observations of Hollywood, uh, there are a lot of people in entourages that you know are trying to feed off of, like parasites, feed off of the, the big names and find any way that they can get a hold of their money or their resources. So when I saw this case, that was the first thing I thought about, right? We've all had bad days at work. Uh, you, you, if, if you look at, you know, marriage as a business, this is like a merger gone wrong or a company dissolving and you're left in limbo, right? Now that is anxiety and stressful, uh, anxiety inducing and stressful. So I'm like, okay, well, this just sounds like somebody's being opportunistic. But the point where I believe she does have merit in her argument is when she says that her doctor recommended that she go on radio silence for three days and not speak to Olivia Wilde or Jason Sudeikis. She says the minute she told them, I'm about to take this leave of medical absence, she was fired shortly thereafter. That part uh, is the part where you begin to have a case. Because if you have a medical condition, if a doctor has told you, you know, you can't, you, it's essentially a disability. You can't be discriminated against at the workplace uh, for having a disability. So up until that point, I thought she was being dramatic. I thought that this was just a person being anti, uh, opportunistic in the midst uh, of a divorce couple's uh, tragedy. But when you come down to it, and if you're being fired because you have uh, some sort of health problem, that to me sounds like a case that at least, at least needs to be looked at. Now, Tony, would it change your opinion if you knew that this nanny, uh, this lady named Gennaro, was allegedly the source was the leak for a lot of what we know now went wrong with their relationship, including this now infamous salad dressing spat, right? Jason right. is allegedly laid down in their driveway and was crying his eyes out over the fact that Olivia Wilde made her famous secret salad dressing for Harry Styles. And that was only a family thing before. Allegedly, this was all leaked by the nanny. So, you know, her hands aren't exactly clean here if, if that's true. Exactly. My thing goes to um, when this, with this wrongful termination, like um, I do agree with, with um, Dominique, though, as, as far as, you know, what is the process? What was the agreement? What what are the laws of the state with, you know, uh, domestic workers and and termination and things of that nature? I think that part she has a leg but then you also do bring up a good point because also i would assume that people that work for or with celebrities sign some type of confidentiality agreement um stating you know 
hey, your business is your business. I hear nothing, see nothing, say nothing. Um, so I, I, although I don't think that the two are equal, <laughs> Um, I, I feel like the onus is more on um, the, the wrongful termination. But yeah, I, I, I'd be curious to know if they counter or come back or, you know, with anything about the break in confidentiality. Yeah, I mean, to me, that's, you know, again, when you're alleging that you were the victim of emotional stress, but you were also the reason allegedly that a lot of this stuff is out of the public. It's it's kind of a it's kind of a hard dichotomy. So uh, we'll, we'll wrap sure. up to it with. You know, we love to go around the horn and learn a little bit more about our guests. We talked about this is a bit of a stretch, Joe. I'll admit it, but we talked about salad dressing. <laughs> Joe loves when I put him on the spot with his question. So, Joe, you love a nice salad, right? Favorite your, favorite salad dressing. That's that's what that's how we're ending the show, huh? Yeah, favorite salad dressing. Well, we're trying to come up with a, a, a surprise here at the end, but we're seeing if Yvonne could work on it as we speak. But in the meantime. Joe, what's your go-to salad dressing? And you can't be Olivia Wilde's special. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, you wouldn't uh, make it to you, for sure not. You're not that was only, su- only supposed to be in the Jason Sudeikis uh, uh, family <laughs> history. I will say, before we move on to the uh, uh, very enlightening salad dressing conversation, um, I bet Olivia Wilde is loving that Jason Sudeikis is getting some bad pub right now because everyone's in love with Ted Lasso. Uh, there's been so many, I, yeah. I've seen so many clips on social media, people just oozing about Jason Sudeikis. I mean, it is a great show, but he he is just blowing up and all the other actors on that show are just can't stop ta- saying good things about him. So I bet Olivia Wilde is secretly loving the little bad pub that he's getting. Well, and- to that point, Joe, Olivia has been dragged anytime she does anything on social media. I don't know if you guys saw she was dragged for complimenting ASAP Rocky. And said, oh, man, this is so hot how he supports Rihanna uh, during her Super Bowl performance. And people online was like, don't ever post another man's husband. You stay away from this one. (laughs) (laughs) Another woman's uh, boyfriend, I should say. You stay away from ASAP. So, I mean, yeah, she's like, finally, somebody doesn't like Jason because she's (laughs) beginning to show end of the state for a bit here. Well, but, you know, she also, uh, her movie kind of tanked, right? The movie she directed, Don't Worry, Darling, with Harry Styles who she was dating at the time, didn't do so well. Even though my daughter saw it maybe 17 I was going to say, I really liked it. I, it really? was definitely something different than, you know, has been out there for a while. All right, Joe, don't, don't avoid the inevitable. But we're, the whole oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Salad dressing. The whole wondering <laughs> what Joe Brand's yeah. OT dressing is. Yeah, let's, let's get back to the hard-hitting topics on Legal Face-Off. So uh, top salad dressings, um, I don't One, even know. One, not dressings. One, a single So dress. just my goat, I mean, yeah. I, I'm... I'm going to be desert island dressing. That's a new podcast. Desert island. I mean, if it's on a desert island, do we have to go a thousand islands then? Ah, well played, Tony. <laughs> what's your go-to salad dressing? I'm going to go with Italian. All right, all right. Very, very, very simple. Very timeless. Yes. Uh, Dometti, what's your? Give us something a little more exotic. Uh, oh, mine is going to be boring because it's not even for what goes on the salad. It's for everything else. Uh, so my overall. I did everything in ranch. Ah, ranch. Ranch dressing is good for everything. I even eat ranch flavored sunflower seeds. Like, that's how serious this ranch addiction is. Yeah, Yeah, I'm I'm going to go ranch. Yvonne, what do you got? Yvonne, our trusty producer, she loves a good salad dressing. What do you you got? 
Yvonne's Googling salad dressing. Spence is killing me. You know, I love a good poppy. I love a good poppy corn, you know? Oh. You know poppy corn. Oh, you, you fancy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't even know how to point that out. Are we, can you hear me now? Yeah, yes. Okay. Um, I'm a classic. I like a good Caesar, but I'm down with Dometi and I do like a good ranch as well. So, um, but yeah, go. I'm a classic Caesar. See, right, what do you got to close us out? You know, what do you got? We got to, we got to see something. We got to give it some, we got to give some, yeah, let's go. Oh. <laughs> Look at that. Look at that, man. Oh, oh my goodness. I'm as red as this sweater they're showing me right now. They're showing <laughs> a video of me flexing my outfit on the red carpet. Ever so humbly uh, showing off my, my wares on the carpet at the Grammys. What are you wearing? TV news. Tell us what are you what are you wearing? Oh, I thought you never asked. I went with the Louboutin <laughs> shoe. Uh, you know, I did a, a drummer knit sweater, double-breasted situation with some Alex tuxedo joggers. Of course. Paired with the nice Cartier bracelet. Yes, yes. Now, oh, Domati, are the bottom of the shoes are they mirrored or are they red? They are red, in fact. <laughs> oh, they are in fact red, Joe. I thought you never asked. Yes. So, so All technically, right, you could wear those cool. shoes, and you'll always be walking on the red carpet. Then, there you go. See that? Wow! <laughs> Instagram bio. Joe, <laughs> <laughs> hey, Joe, take some notes uh, uh, from our our new uh, show stylist, Dominic. <laughs> uh, uh, not, right. not to say your drip isn't you know fly, as the kids say, but you know, we well, gotta I, see you, we got to see you in one of those blazers. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm I'm just glad I didn't show up in a, a backwards hat and a uh, in a hoodie today because I, I got I got lashed out the last time I did that. You sure did. <laughs> All right, that's going to do it for the legal grab bag here on the Legal Face Off podcast. A huge thanks to Tony Tate and Domati Pongo for rejoining us here on the Legal Face Off podcast. Another big thanks to our earlier guests, Cleet Blakeman, Law Professor Sharon R. Fairley, and David Eskibius, along with our producers, Yvonne Barbosa, Ben Anderson. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share the Legal Face Off podcast. If you enjoy it, please rate us five stars. For Tina Martini, who's under the weather, and for Rich Lenkoff, I'm Joe Brand. This has been the Legal Face Off podcast. We'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. It's Christina Martini and Rich Lenkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab, so hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question, just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.